in a soccer team. And um, yeah, some people here like playing their soccer. I know James and uh, Levi play soccer. Terry was a bit of a centre forward, weren't you, Terry? A fullback. Well, I couldn't be much further from the front than there. Um, well, I played soccer, and I've got to say that um, uh, you know, like every person that age, I uh, was in my early days. I um, I thought I was a better soccer player than I was. I broke my leg playing soccer. I like to say it put an end to my international career before it got off the ground. Um, but I did. I broke both bones. Uh, they heard the crack from one end of the ground to the other. Uh, all I just have a memory of laughing all the way to the hospital with laughing gas um, and finally taking probably a couple of years to recover. But, you know, in this soccer club that I played in, um, and it was, a, it was an ordinary soccer club, uh, we got beaten quite soundly. We had two players who were really quality players. Uh, one was a guy by the name of, uh, I, I think his name was, was Michael Lehman, and he was a goalie, and he went on to play state league. And we, we gave thanks to God for him every single week because I reckon he saved us from going down another 20 goals every week. He was unbelievable. Um, nothing got past him unless there was uh, literally um, he was on his own. But then there was another guy, and his name was called John West. No, he wasn't the salmon guy, but his name was John West, and uh, he didn't go on to play state league because when he came to play with us, he was 50 years of age. But he was still, by far and away, the best player in our team. And I remember watching him on the ball, and he would weave and dodge, and I couldn't get the ball off him. Most of us couldn't get the ball off him. He taught us a lot of things um, about how to play soccer. But I do remember this, more than anything I remember of John West, was what an incredible and beautiful example of a Christian man he was. And I think at the time I was probably 16 or 17 years of age, uh, and I, I knew him from about 16 to about 18 years of age. And, um, and, and he was just the most wonderful Christian man, wonderful example, um, gracious um, and, and, uh, and, and very willing to engage you in a faith conversation. Really serious about his soccer, uh, but very, very serious about his faith. And he became a mentor to me um, almost unconsciously. And I don't think he knew that, but here I am talking about him right now with you, you can tell, um, 30, 40 plus years later on, that he made a significant impact on my life. But I remember one particular conversation. I just bought my first car, and it was a Mazda Capella, a green, a green car. And you know, like every young young guy, sort of like get your first car, and you feel like you're free as a bird. You know, you're going to hit the road, and you wonder how you ever lived without a car before you got your car. And I think he sensed something in me shifting, and he asked this question. And the question was. What are you going to do with your life? Wow. You know, like I, I was 18 at the time and, and I was just thinking if I can get through this year, you know, I was thinking about maybe three or four weeks ahead and he asked this question, what are you going to do with your life? And I remember the conversation he had with me as, as I was showing off my new car and he was sitting there in the passenger seat and he said to me, what are you doing with your life? And I remember that was the pivot point for me. It was one of those moments, those aha moments. You know, we had them on the way all the time where people dislodge you and shift you. What are you going to do with your life? 
I think we all need people in our lives who will challenge us. I think we all need people in our lives who will ask the tough questions and maybe shift us from ordinariness. It's the easiest thing in the world to live in an ordinariness. And there are some people who make, a, uh, if you like, a, a virtue of ordinariness. But I, I think actually that God has for us something more than just going with the flow, conforming to the pattern of the world. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 12? He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Do not be ordinary like the world is ordinary in that sense. Let God transform you by the renewing of your mind. I was thinking about Eva Burroughs, General Eva Burroughs. Anybody here heard of General Eva Burroughs, the Salvation Army General? You know, um, at her height, um, and I was privileged to call her a friend, at her height, um, she was one dynamic, dynamic leader. And I remember uh, many years ago inviting her when I was still in Bendigo, I invited her to come to Bendigo and we set up a businessman's dinner. And, you know, we had all the leading businessmen in Bendigo at this dinner. And I remember sitting on this table with a few of my business friends and their mouths were just, you know, dropped open as they were listening to her speak and as she shared her faith and as she spoke about the, 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 the injustice and the poverty of the world. And I bumped into one of those friends, dear friends, the other day at a funeral in Bendigo and he's, we're all 25 years or so older and he, he said to me, you know, he said, I remember that day when Eva Burroughs came and I remember her speaking. What an impact she made on my life. And here was a person who was, who was uh, you know, familiar with prime ministers and popes and presidents all over the world. At one stage, she was described as the third most influential woman in Britain behind the Queen and, and Diana. But, you know, what, what was most blessing to me was watching her when she was in her 80s, when she'd retired as the general, and she was stooped over a bit, and she was getting shorter, I think, by the year. But one of the things I really loved watching was how she, would, how she gave herself to a local church, mentoring young women in that local church, pouring herself into them like they were the only people in the world. And to her dying day, she did that. And I remember saying to a couple of young women who were being mentored by General Eva, they used to call her Geneva, uh, for fun. I remember saying to them, if you're being mentored by, the, by General Eva, there's not a better, better example of a Christian mentor you can have than General Eva. And I remember tuning into her funeral. It was, pod, you know, it was uh, streamed live. And I remember hearing my friend Brendan Nottle talk about General Eva and some of the things that she did as a humble servant of the Lord right to her dying day. So, when I read this text today, I was reminded of these saints who spoke into my life and they walked in Paul's tradition, if you like, of being a wonderful mentor and, and strength uh, to, 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 to young, young people, young men, um, men um, lifting in to the faith. They walked in this tradition of course, Paul himself walked in the tradition of Jesus who did this very thing with his disciples. And quite clearly, Paul had, had a very fond spot for Timothy and Epaphroditus. Um, today, in our, 
in our in our reading, um, you know, as as we put the scripture up, we're looking at this this time when when uh, when Paul was in prison, and he commended these two these two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Um, they held a special place in his heart because of their character. Uh, let's let's see what he said about Timothy in in uh, chapter two, Philippians chapter two, commencing at verse nineteen. Here it is. He says, "I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you." He says, "I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone." looks out for their own interests, not those of Christ of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. You know, there's something distinctive about Timothy. Note that little statement he puts in there, I have no one else like him. I have no one else like him. I think Paul sees in Timothy a truly Christ-centred life. But how can you tell? How can you tell? What does this text tell us that can lead us to that conclusion? That we have, that, that we have someone here who is truly Christ-centred. How can we tell that? Well, first of all, we, we read these words... Paul speaks about how available he is to be sent. One of the great traits of God's obedient children is their willingness to be sent. Isaiah chapter 6, we read the story of Isaiah um, in the Old Testament who, who was in this moment, he was in the temple and the temple shook and it was filled with smoke and, and he had this experience of, of, of God showing up in, in glorious presence. And he knew straight away that he was standing on holy ground and he knew that he was not worthy to stand on that holy ground. And so he was terrified and he was afraid. And in Isaiah 6 he records this. He says, he says as, as, as he's trying to, I'm sure trying to avert his eyes, become small in that awesome place. And then he says this, Then one of the seraphim, one of the angels flying, around flew to me with a live coal in his hand which he had taken with tongs from the altar with it he touched my mouth and said see this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for then i heard the voice of the lord saying whom shall i send and who will go for us and i said here i am send me one of the great traits of God's people, one of the, the great marks of the Christ-centred life is the willingness to be sent, the availability to be sent. And can I say this, and, and, and I want to try and tease this out with you for a minute, but for me, the willingness to go is not the same as the willingness to be sent. The willingness to go is not the same as the willingness to be sent. To go... Well, that could be an extension of my own ambition and my own ego. I could be going off on a grand adventure. I can go. I'll go where I want to go. I will sit and think, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. 
I'll go there if it's good for me to go. Going and being sent are not the same. To be sent, that requires submission and servanthood. That requires us to lay down our ambitions, to lay down our egos. To be sent means we're on the master's business, not our own. I remember uh, as I was thinking this through, I remember the story of Peter. You remember in John chapter 21, the very last chapter of John's gospel, and, and, and we see this story of, of Jesus meeting the disciples on the beach with breakfast. And then he calls, recalls Peter, recalls Peter to, to go on this, to go on a journey again with Jesus. But listen to this. This is, this, is, this is what Jesus said to Peter. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Can you hear that? He's saying, Peter, you're very good at going where you want to go. Going is good for you. But if Jesus wanted to send him, it may be that he will send Peter where Peter does not want to go. And then he said to Peter, after he'd said that, follow me. And we see a little bit further down, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And hear the words of Jesus. Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. To be sent is to follow the will of Jesus. And I want to say again that the willingness to go is not the same as the willingness to be sent. I wonder, are we, are we willing to be sent? Are we willing to, to be sent to go where the master calls us to go? Or, or is our life basically we out the options and we say, you know what, that just doesn't suit me. It's just not who I am. It's not, it's not for me. I've got something else I want to do. When we look at Timothy, we see in Timothy someone who is available to be sent. We see secondly, and I'll touch this point briefly, one who will show genuine concern for them. To be christ Centered is to be others focused. And we understand this when we look at Jesus. We see that Jesus is entirely this. If we're going to be like Christ, if we're going to have Christ in the center of our life, if we're going to be living in his spirit, if we're going to be, be walking in his spirit, then we're going to walk as he walked. And when we look at Jesus, we see how he pours his life out for others. The ultimate expression of this, of course, is that not counting you know, um, the cost for himself, gave his life for us. We know, of course, you know, when you read the, the stories, that Jesus was given many opportunities in the trials to have an out clause. I think Pilate a couple of times 
gave Jesus plenty of opportunity to say, got it wrong, sorry, or I didn't know what I was thinking. I know his, his, his mother and his brothers turned up one day and they thought he was getting it wrong and they wanted to take him away and make him safe. And some would say he must have been a lunatic because he seemed to be walking headlong into this, into this confrontation which could only result in death. He was no lunatic. He surrendered his life for others. And so when, so when, uh, when Paul speaks about Timothy, he says, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Emphasise, underline, bold, your welfare because he is walking as Jesus walked. Thirdly, we see this. How do we know? How can we tell that Timothy is truly Christ-centred? Because Paul says he has a proven passion and a servant heart for the work of the gospel. He says, he says for you know that Timothy has proved himself, proven because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. And can I tell you, to serve with Paul in the work of the gospel is a dangerous thing to do. Where is Paul writing this from? He's writing this from a prison cell. Why? Not because he's stolen something, murdered somebody or done anybody harm, but because of the work of the gospel. He is in prison. Anybody who wants to walk with Paul in this world is likely to find themselves in prison too. By the grace of God, Timothy was not. But Paul said it's not because he was timid or weak when it came to the work of the gospel. Communicating the gospel was the deepest passion of Paul. And it's the very purpose for which Jesus commissioned his disciples. And you might say, well, you know, it's, it's just words. You know, and there's other things that are important too, like holidays and stuff and, you know, things, plans I've got. And this can kind of fit somewhere in there. I know it's important, but I don't think it's that important. Can I tell you, it is central, central, central. This is what Paul says about his heart for the gospel. He says, For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. He goes on to say, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Now the word preach there, of course, uh, we've made that synonymous with a particular approach to communicating the gospel. But communicating the gospel, that's the key. And communicating it not just in words but in your life. Woe to me if I do not communicate the gospel. Now, Here's an awkward reality for me. I don't know, sometimes I'm in the middle of this sermon preparation, I'm right into the scripture, I go, this is great, and then, then I have this awkward aha moment. And I think I need to give this, this uh, awkward aha moment that I had to you. It appears to me, reading the scripture, that true servants, true servants are rare. Rare. They're very rare. See, when you, when you kind of ex examine, explore the distinctive nature in Timothy, this Christ-centred nature, you can't explore that without setting it against the normative, 
So you've got the distinctive in Timothy and then you've got the normative, which Paul describes as everyone else. He uses this term in verse 21 of our reading. He says, for everyone... Wow, that's a global sort of term, isn't it? He says, everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Who's he talking about? Is he talking about the Roman Senate? Is he talking about the Caesar? Is he talking about, is he talking about the peasants in the fields? He's talking about fellow believers. He's, he's comparing Timothy's passion and heart to be sent to show genuine concern for them, his proven passion and servant heart for the work of the gospel, and it's compared against everyone. He says everyone looks out for their own interests. So here's the normative, everyone else. And it's kind of like, and it was awkward. I've got to say, if you're feeling squeamish about what he's saying here, I felt very squeamish about this. I felt very, I don't know, uncomfortable about this. But he was basically saying that the normative is self-centred. And how can you tell when that is the case? In verse 21, we read those words, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus. So first of all, they look out for their own interests, promote their own desires, not those of Christ Jesus. Jesus himself said, not everybody who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom, but those who do what my Father in heaven wants. So it's not just a matter of words. Words are cheap. Words are easy. Worship songs can be sung by rote. Going to church can be a routine thing we do. But the real mark is looking out for your own interests, promoting our own desires, not those of Christ Jesus. I read a book the other day, uh, one of my favourite authors who's written many books, but he was just, he wrote in this book contemplating retirement. In fact, he just retired. And as he was talking uh, and as he was writing, um, he was musing over whether, because he'd been all his life uh, vocationally, you know, paid to be a Christian minister, he wondered whether when he retired, whether he would lose his passion, lose his desire. He wondered whether this, whether this was all tied to being paid, you know, um, because uh, somehow or other it's kind of like you, you have this, this freedom. I, I understand that really well. I actually hear people who say to me, oh, you know, when I talk about, you know, conversations I have with people, they say, oh, yeah, but, you know, you've got the, you, you're paid to do that. And, 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 and he was really worried about this. And, and he was worried because he'd watched many of his friends who he had been passionate with about faith. As they retired, they entered their retirement and they kind of like just became self-centred. And, and, and they seemed to, lost, to, to lose any passion they had for this thing. And, and as he was mulling this over, he, he writes in his book, he was sitting at an airport and there was a young man there and this young man was quite obviously a little bit distressed about something or other and so he went over to speak with this young man who he discovered uh, wasn't going to be able to get a lift with his family when he got to the other end of their journey and he didn't have the money to get in a taxi and so this friend... Um, this 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 uh, author said, "I'll give you a lift. It's on my way." 
In fact, it was the opposite direction from where he lived by about 40 kilometres. But he said, I'll give you a lift. He says, it's on my way. And as he sat in the car with this young man and they were driving along for all this journey back out to where he lived, he said they had the most unbelievable conversation about what faith is about. And he had the most incredible opportunity to share his, his own journey about his life and his faith. And, uh, and then he discovered this. He said uh, he discovered it's just who he is. He can't turn that off. He can't turn that tap off. It's not like something he's been putting on all these years because he's been paid to do it. He just doesn't know how not to do that. He doesn't know how not to be that person who's just excited about his faith. And he was so excited to discover that. Can you get where he's coming from? I got asked recently why I became a minister. And uh, I get asked that a lot. I regularly say, you've heard me say, if you want to get into a conversation about your faith, just tell them you're a minister. Uh, because everybody who hears you're a minister just immediately wants to ask you a question about it. And I got asked this question, how did I become a minister? And I realised it came down to me about making a living or having a real life. And I'm not saying that if you're not a minister, well, you're all ministers, that's the thing. You're secret ministers. Become visible. Shout it out, I'm a minister. But it comes down to having a life. And it has nothing to do with getting paid or not getting paid. I don't know any other way to live my life. I just do not. Woe to me if I don't give Jesus everything I have, I say. Woe to me. And I know that for some of you, and I'm grateful for this, some of you kind of come up with me, sometimes you want to put your arm around me and go, can you just kind of back off the pace a bit, Dave? Can you just go a bit... I know some of you pray for me and you kind of hope that my health won't kind of clap out and that you know I won't sort of drop dead one day because I'm... I go, drop dead I will one day. Sure as eggs. Nothing more guaranteed. We're out of this world. None of us are going to survive it. It's permanent. You know, like uh, we're, all, we're all terminal in some way or other. But I want to go. Having left nothing in the tank, I truly do. For the sake of the gospel. Woe to me if I don't give Jesus everything I have. Woe to me. I was thinking about William Booth, one of my great kind of like historical visions. A matter of weeks before he died, he was blind and he was frail. He was 82. I can tell you, some would say, well past his prime. Well past his prime. They'd be saying, General, have a sit. General, have a lie down. General. And this is what he said. Uh, maybe a week or so before he died, blind and frail in his 80s. While women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While little children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go in prison, in and out, in and out, in and out as they do now, I'll fight. While there is a drunkard left, while there is a poor lost girl upon the streets, while there uh, remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight, I'll fight to the very end. That's inspirational to me. And so I look at this and I see this kind of juxtaposition, if you like, between Timothy's character and everyone. And I don't want to be in the everyone. I don't. I want to be counted among those 
who would give Jesus everything I have. Now then I see Epaphroditus in this story. Paul mentions this second wonderful saint. We don't hear another word about him uh, in the scripture, but he was a true heart too. Have a listen to this. He says, but I think it's necessary, so after he's spoken about Timothy, it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus. So Epaphroditus had come from them to bring greetings to Paul and to tell Paul that people were praying for him and upholding him while he was in prison. He says, I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. He's not distressed over his own illness. He's distressed that others might be distressed because of his illness. I go, whoa, how, how servant-hearted that is. Indeed, says Paul, he was ill. Check this out. He wasn't just a bit ill. He says, indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. He says, therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. I love Paul's heart. He's sitting in this prison cell. They're all anxious about him in the prison cell. And he's going, I'm anxious about you, that you're anxious about me. Oh, oh. This is not normative. This is, this is distinctive. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give him. He paid a price, but gladly. Almost died for the work of Christ, brave and courageous, Again, distinctive, not normative. That's really the question I, I found. So can I tell you, when I'm putting a sermon together, I'm just going to give you a sermon preparation 101 here. When I'm putting a sermon together, it has to speak to me because God is speaking to me when I do this. You might think I stand here and I kind of like pontificate in a kind of a vacuum. No, I'm being asked questions all the time by this. For me and here's the question that I was asked am I distinctive or am I normative am I am I like no one else I have no one else like him or am I everyone else am I distinctive or normative and I'll know when I honestly name what's at the centre of my life you will know when you honestly truthfully honestly name what's at the centre of your lives. A friend of mine gave me a definition of God one day. It's stuck in my memory for 40 years now. Your God is that to which your mind most turns in a day. I want to ask you the question, what does your mind most travel to in a day? What occupies your thinking most of the time? And, you know, we make excuses and... You know, we, we say, well, you know, it's not like that. It's not like that now. It's a complicated world now. And 
there's all you know we've got to raise our kids and we've got to you know we've got work to do and you know and it's busy world now and Jesus met people making excuses all the time and he told stories of people making excuses they've got fields to go and look at and they've got a cow they want to go and buy and and they've got commitments and stuff and it didn't wash then and I want to say that it doesn't wash now you can kid yourself you can you can give yourself a free kick if you like but we're being called here to a deeper sense of what it means to be Christ-centered I want to say finally that uh, I was reading the story of Jim Elliot some of you may know the story of Jim Elliot he was a missionary to Ecuador to the Harani Indians And on the 26th of October, 1949, he wrote in his journal these words. No one is a fool who surrenders what they cannot keep for that which they cannot lose. Some of you have heard that quote before, have you not? Yep, Jim Elliot wrote that. No one is a fool who surrenders what they cannot keep for that which they cannot lose. And he gave his life five years later. He was murdered by the Indians that he went to minister to for the sake of the gospel. We're not here to be informed, friends. We're here to be transformed. That's why we listen to God's word. We're not here to be given a lecture. We're here to be stirred in the heart. God wants to stir our hearts and stir our minds and stir our lives. And Timothy and Epaphroditus, they set for us an example of what it means to be distinctive, not normative. And I want to suggest to you that right now we need to ask ourselves whether we're distinctive or normative. In fact, we're going to do that right now. I'm going to get you just where you sit quietly. Just get your screen out, whoever's around you, not for the rest of your life, but screen out for a minute, people around you. I want you to just... Step inside for a minute and search your own heart. Let God search your heart. You know, the scripture says, search me, O Lord. Let him search you. I want you to just do this for a minute. I'm going to ask Tyrone, would you just put a bit of quiet music in the background for us here while we think this through. How would you honestly describe yourself right now? Would you describe yourself as distinctive or normative on the, on the basis of what we've seen in the word today? And then I'm going to ask you not just to say, yes, I'm that or that. I'm going to go, how so? Justify that to yourself. Justify it. Speak to yourself. Let the Lord speak to you about that. Let's do that right now. Can us take a few moments to do that? Lord Jesus, as we pray this prayer of examine, as we look inside as we square up to our own selves in the full light of your gaze, your love and mercy, your grace that is abundant to us. My prayer, Lord, is that you'll help us to be truthful to ourselves as we sit before you, truthful to you. You'll lead us and show us what it means to be distinctive. That our lives would 
would be lived for the cause of the gospel. That you wouldn't bring a mighty movement of your spirit because your people chose not to be like everyone, but to be like you. Friends, if you've got business to do with Jesus today, you know, it means if you've got something weighing on your heart as a result of what the Word is saying, then I recommend and I really suggest to you that you talk to somebody about that before you leave today and, uh, and God give you grace as you walk.